So as I said a moment ago, there is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. Some might even say that it is the central story of the biblical story. And that is that over and over again, God's people continue to fall short. We continue to mess up. And yet over and over and over again, God continues to forgive us and to offer us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And in response to that, our call as people of faith is to go into the world and to forgive others in the same way that we ourselves have been forgiven. I would argue that forgiveness is essential to our lives. That without it, no marriage can survive, no family can stay together, no society can be sustained. Forgiveness is essential to our lives. But yet it is also, I would argue, one of the hardest things that we will ever do. It is, as Lewis Mead says, life's toughest work and love's biggest risk. So in this series, we're looking at some of the freedoms that come with forgiving, uh, even if we are the ones uh, who need forgiveness. Uh, And I would argue, too, that that is especially true if we are the ones that need to be forgiven by ourselves, that we need to forgive ourselves. And so we're discovering that there is a freedom, there is a grace, there is a reconciliation, there is a joy that is promised to those who are willing to do the hard work to embrace forgiveness in their lives. So this morning, I'm going to talk about the importance of forgiveness in our marriages, but not just our marriages, but any, I would, I would say, any intimate, long-term relationship uh, for them to thrive. There needs to be an element of forgiveness. So the text uh, that you're going to hear in just a moment is uh, one of the texts that is uh, read at just about any wedding ceremony that I officiate. Uh, And in this text, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and he basically describes how Christians are meant to live in a life of community. What are the ethics? What are the the core values of what it means to live in this world in the sense of community. So I invite you to listen now to this word from Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with kindness compassion, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. For just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bear with one another, I did that already. Above all, clothe yourselves with love that binds all things together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The word of God for the people of God. So I want to let you in on a little insider baseball, if you will. 
And that is to tell you that just about any minister, any priest, any rabbi, will all tell you more or less the same thing. And that is that we would rather do a funeral than a wedding any day of the week. It's true. In fact, several years ago, I went to a, uh, a reading uh, that Barbara Brown Taylor was doing. She had just written a book called Leaving Church, in which she described uh, leaving the pastoral ministry to go into uh, higher education, into the academy. And, and it was a popular book, and she did uh, this book discussion group, and at the end there was a Q&A, uh, and, and one of the questions that was asked was, what do you miss most about uh, pastoral ministry? And she thought for a minute, and finally she says, well, let me tell you what I miss least. And she paused, and every minister in the room said with one voice, weddings! <laughs> and she said, yes, that's true. It's true. Uh, now, let me also say that I do love doing weddings, especially if I did yours. I'm not talking about your wedding. <laughs> I'm talking about other weddings that I may have performed, uh, but I do love doing weddings. But there are times, if I'm honest, when I feel like part of the furniture. And when I do a memorial service, when I do a funeral, I feel like I have something to offer. Uh, I can offer a healing, a, a hopeful word that helps the family move forward in their grief, helps them celebrate and remember and to honor their loved one. But in a wedding? Truth is, the bride and groom really don't want to hear what I have to say and are probably not listening anyway. Instead, what they're thinking is, does my dress look okay? Can we just get to the reception? And dear God, please don't let Cousin Eddie drink too much champagne. <laughs> now again, I'm sure your wedding was different. But as a general rule, no one really wants to hear what I have to say. Because what I have to say is that falling in love is easy. But staying in love for a lifetime is, at least for most of us, really hard work. <laughs> Hang on to that, Jim. Hang on to that. <laughs> Hang on to that, my friend. The truth is, is that marriage, long-term intimate relationships are part determination, part willpower, and a constant willingness to seek out and to grant forgiveness. That if your marriage is going to survive, let alone thrive, you're going to have to get really good at saying six words. And those words are, I am sorry and I forgive you. But no one wants to hear that on their wedding day. They want to hear that marriage is going to be a lifetime of romance and roses and puppy dog kisses. But it's not. Now granted, if we all lived up to Paul's prescription, our marriage uh, really would be amazingly harmonious and blessed that we'd never need forgiveness. But the truth is, is that most of us struggle to live these virtues on a daily basis. We don't always think of the other person first. We sometimes speak in, in harsh tones. Sometimes we find ourselves easily irritated. Sometimes we fail to show the respect that is owed to our partner. 
And Paul knows this. Paul knows this, which is why he goes on to advise the Christians at Colossae, bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against the other, forgive each other. Just as God has already forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Part of what I love about this verse is its realism, right? Paul knows that no one is going to always be able to live up to these virtues that he lays out. And so he knows that that there will be times when we irritate each other. When we get under each other's skin, we may even intentionally push the other person's buttons that even the best relationships sometimes have regular sources of conflict, many of which tend to be very petty. So let me just ask you, those that are married, those of you who are involved in long-term intimate relationships, Are there little things that your partner does that sometimes frustrate and irritate you? Now, please, don't shout them out. (laughs) Jim, I'm looking at you. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this. Are there things that sometimes you do that irritate the heck out of your spouse or partner? Somebody just said no, and he's lying right now. I don't even know who it is back there, but I can hear him. And I can guarantee that he is not sitting next to his wife. I can tell you that. (laughs) The truth is we all have those things. But if we hold on to those, those irritations, those disappointments, those perceived slights, that pretty soon we become impossible to function in our relationships. It's what we might refer to as death by a thousand paper cuts. As Paul told the Colossians, no relationship can be sustained without learning to bear with one another. At the same time, clothing ourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and and patience, it means seeking to understand the needs of our partners, of our mates, and working to to meet those needs and to try our best to avoid doing those little things that cause irritation the most. Now let me just point out too that I think that there's something else in that same vein that can be detrimental to our relationships, and that is what I oftentimes refer to as scorekeeping. And I know that you probably know what I mean. It's that constant keeping track, keeping tabs of all the little things that we do right and our partner does wrong. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? I did the laundry, and I made the bed, and you left your dirty dishes in the den. Check. (laughs) Every time they do something little that annoys us, there's a check mark. You know, you really are insensitive. Check. You're just proving you don't care. Check. There you go again. Check. Keeping score is a sure way to ensure that you are doomed for a pretty miserable relationship. Because here's what I've come to discover is that no matter what the score is, nobody wins. Which is why Paul says in another letter to another church, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, There are things, of course, 
that move past those little thoughtlessness, the little passing hurts that sometimes, uh, that, we can, that we can oftentimes learn to live with, that we can deal with on a rather simple basis. There are bigger things that, if left unattended, can become destructive. They can become deadly. The, 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 those things that, as Paul puts it, are not quite so easy to bear with. These are things like neglect, like hurtful words, like persistent insensitivity, public embarrassments, dishonesty and deceit, failure to love, to cherish, to build up, to bless. Whereas those smaller slights that I talked a minute ago, they create gaps that sometimes divide us. These things build up walls between us. Now, there are two possible responses to these bigger hurts. We can seek justice or we can offer mercy. We can seek justice or we can offer mercy. And if your partner never hears you ask for mercy and doesn't ever feel mercy from you, then he or she is probably going to seek justice, which oftentimes looks like given, getting even. We say things like, you know, you've hurt me so many times and now I'm going to hurt you. I know what your needs are, but why would I meet those when you don't meet mine? I know this will hurt you, but after the way that you've hurt me, well, doggone it, you deserve it. We punish rather than love. And when we practice this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, what we end up with is two blind people with no teeth inside a joyless relationship. The answer, God's answer, is the process and the practice of forgiveness. That this is the best way, once and for all, that if we don't let go of every little slight, every harsh word, every insensitive act, if those things are saved up, adding another brick to the, to the wall that already divides us, and we find ourselves fractured beyond repair. So how do we go about with achieving that level of forgiveness for these kinds of wounds in the context of marriage and in the context of any long-term intimate relationship. You see, I believe that free forgiveness is most freely and fully given when the one who has done the wrong repents. And repents is one of those churchy words that really represents a, a four-step process that includes awareness, regret, confession, and ultimately change. It begins with, with an awareness that something that we have done has brought pain to our partner. And with that understanding of the hurt that we have caused, we experience regret, remorse. And sometimes, if we're honest, that sometimes takes a little work. It takes a little effort. The truth is that when my wife, Kelly, makes me aware of something that I've done wrong, that hardly ever happens my immediate reaction is more often than not defensiveness than regret. It takes some time. It takes some time, and I have to search my heart. I have to put myself in her shoes. I have to eventually, eventually get there. And sometimes it takes a day or a week or sometimes longer than that, but it usually happens. 
And once we're aware, once we own the hurt that we've caused, we begin to understand the impact that it's had. In that moment, we are ready for the third step, which is confession, which oftentimes sounds a lot like this. Sweetheart, I think I finally understand how you were affected by what I did. And I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you, and I realized that I did. Will you please forgive me? Now, this does not involve using that as an opportunity to point out all of their faults. That's not confession. Neither is it a passing sorry as you mumble over your shoulder, passing in the hallway. That's not confession either. This is about acknowledging the wrong that you've done and earnestly asking for grace. Now, most of us, I suspect, are capable of adopting and improving in these first three steps of repentance, the awareness, the regret, the confession. But it's that last step, the actual change that oftentimes trips us up. And yet, I would argue it is the most important of the four steps. You see, in Greek, the the word for repentance is metanoia. And it means, quite literally, to change one's mind and one's heart, leading to a change in our behavior. It's not enough to change our mind. It's not enough to change our heart. We also need to change our behavior. And that process of repentance is the only way, church, that healing can honestly occur. Now, of course, the question of whether or not your partner will offer that forgiveness and grant that forgiveness, ultimately, that's not up to you. But what I've discovered is that sometimes, especially in those moments when we don't want to forgive, that we do best by remembering that at some point, At some point, we will be on the other end of that equation, and we will need that forgiveness from them. The truth is, both repentance and forgiveness, they take effort. And both are works and expressions of love. Now, I do need to say, And I do need to point out that there are some sins that sometimes people commit against their partners, grievances that are so serious that they tear at the soul of the other person and they pose a serious threat to the relationship. Things like a a constant deceit, things like physical or psychological or even verbal abuse, addictions, infidelity. Sometimes these things cause such pain that the marriage is wounded beyond repair. And in those situations, it is possible for healing and forgiveness and reconciliation to occur, but it is not a foregone conclusion. Because I would argue that marriage is not meant to be a life sentence. It's not meant to be a time of torture. Neither are we ever meant to live in places of fear. And sometimes a marriage is filled with persistent deceit and addictions and abuse. And it ceases to be the type of marriage that God intends and desires for us. And that's not to say that they can't survive, but they can't do it without some sort of saving grace. And the same is true for marriages that involve infidelity. Some survive, that many don't. Some even go on to to become stronger than they had ever been. 
But that requires incredible, amazing grace. But let me also say that whether our marriage survives or not, what I believe is that God is the God of the second chance. And you may not be able to save your marriage, but with time, with work, with grace, you can find a life and a love and joy again. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against the other, forgive each other. Just as God has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, there are six words that must be said regularly if a marriage, if, if any type of intimate relationship is to last. Two sets of three words each, and sometimes you'll say the first three, and your partner will say the second, and sometimes they'll go first and you'll finish. But any relationship is hopeless without freely sharing these words. I am sorry. I forgive you. Let's pray. God, help us to forgive others as we seek your forgiveness. And help us to be reconciled in our relationships and give us faith in them and to them. And heal us, we pray, and restore to us the joy of your salvation. For we pray all of this in the name of the one who gave his life for our forgiveness. Amen.